0: Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. Israel under mounting pressure to pause as deaths in Gaza escalate. I get the view from Jordan's Foreign Minister Eman Safadi after crucial meetings with Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Then, under the radar, Nada Bashir reports on extreme settler violence in the occupied West Bank. Also ahead, a former IDF soldier brings us his eyewitness account about how the last Gaza invasion changed him forever. Plus, two professors talked to Michelle Martin about how American college campuses have been a flashpoint and how they are trying to bridge the divide. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in London. Israel comes under mounting pressure to pause as the death toll in Gaza passes 10,000, nearly half of them children, according to the Hamas-run health officials there. But not even Israel's staunchest ally seems able to convince them of that humanitarian track. President Biden spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu by phone today. This after the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, spent the weekend crisscrossing the region for urgent talks in Tel Aviv, Jordan, the West Bank, and Iraq. He concluded today in Turkey.
1: We know the, the deep concern here for the terrible toll that Gaza is taking on uh, Palestinians, on men, women, and children in Gaza, innocent civilians a concern that we share and that we're working on every single day. Uh, We've uh, engaged the Israelis on steps that they can take to minimize civilian casualties.
0: Israeli officials are rejecting any pause, much less a ceasefire, saying that that would only benefit Hamas after the slaughter of 1,400, mostly civilians, 14 weeks, four weeks ago. Listen to this from Israel's ambassador to the United Nations.
1: There is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza in coordination with the U.S. and the U.N. We allowed the number of trucks uh, entering Gaza now with food and medicines to reach almost 100 trucks uh, every day. So we don't see the need for humanitarian pauses right now because it will only enable Hamas to rearm and regroup and prevent us from uh, achieving our goal to destroy Hamas's terrorist capabilities.
0: So how is that being received around the world especially in Arab capitals and on the streets? Jordan's foreign minister Ayman Safadi met Blinken this weekend and now he's with King Abdullah at EU headquarters trying to press for getting more aid into Gaza. Jordan says it's delivering aid itself now. Its air force dropped medical aid into Gaza into a hospital early this morning. Foreign Minister, welcome back to our program. Um, Can I first start by asking you, it must have taken some coordination and quite a deliberate stance to start airdropping into Gaza. Is this a one-off or are you going to continue to do it?
1: Well, it it did take some uh, coordination, Christian, and uh, uh, we dropped uh, essential supplies to a field hospital that we've had in Gaza since 2009. Obviously, those supplies would only last for so long, given the enormity of the humanitarian challenge uh, there is. And uh, we hope uh, not only will we be able to do more of that, but that uh, uh, all of us in this, in the international community come together to pressure uh, for delivering uh, the necessary supplies uh, uh, to Gaza. Because contrary to what the uh, Israeli rep to the UN just said, uh, there is a humanitarian catastrophe. And I think if he doesn't see that, I can only explain this by, by, by saying it seems he doesn't see Palestinians as humans. He's talking about a hundred trucks when the average before this catastrophic war started was about 500 trucks per day, and then that was not enough. So just to say that there is no humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza speaks to the complete blindness uh, of, this, of this person to, uh, to, to what's happening in Gaza.
0: But clearly also what he's saying doesn't match uh, reality because you obviously had to, ide- had to coordinate with Israel. So the Israeli military, the Israeli government had to presumably acknowledge that there is a humanitarian catastrophe, no matter what their UN ambassador says.
1: Well, I mean, we would like to see the acknowledgement translated into uh, effective impactful action on the ground. Uh, People are dying from the Israeli bombs, but they're also dying from the the lack of water, the lack of uh, uh, medicine, uh, the uh, very, very dangerous situation at hospitals where a lot of them are simply not functioning beyond the basic, basic essential. Uh, So uh, if there is the acknowledgement, we'd like to see that translated in real Uh, action that does uh, even begin uh, to address the the, the, uh, catastrophic situation we have in Gaza. Uh,
0: Foreign Minister, you're with King Abdullah in uh, EU headquarters. What have you managed to extract from them in terms of stronger humanitarian deliveries? Tell me what what the mission is for, for Jordan there in Brussels right now.
1: Well, Kishan, we just arrived. As you said, His Majesty in here, is here. We just met with the Belgian Prime Minister. We met with the Secretary General of NATO. Uh, tomorrow, there will be meetings at the EU. And our message is clear and simple. Uh, this war on Gaza has to stop. A ceasefire is a must. Delivery of sufficient and sustained humanitarian supplies is a responsibility, is a human duty, let alone a legal obligation by by Israel as an occupying power. Uh, So this is the message on which we are working, and and obviously trying to put things in context as to why we are here, and and that the only way out of this uh, nightmare, this catastrophe, is for the war to stop, and uh, uh, the needs of of Gazans who have been suffering even before this war started be addressed, and then we all look at how we can uh, get to a, a, a situation where what happened never happens again. And that can only happen through a, a, a peace plan that would fulfill the rights of the Palestinians to freedom and will address uh, the Israeli concerns as well.
0: I'm gonna to get to the peace plan in a moment, but first um, obviously Jordan uh, is one of the first two countries, two Arab countries, neighbors to make uh, you know peace with Israel, it goes all the way back to the mid nineties. Um, Now we've got, you know, past 10,000 deaths in Gaza, according to the authorities there, the Hamas authorities, half of them nearly children. President Biden has spoken to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Blinken has been uh, talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu and Herzog over the weekend. What did he tell you? Is is the message getting through? They've said, forget it, no pause, no ceasefire, because that'll just enable Hamas. (coughs)
1: Well, I mean, obviously, all of us are trying to uh, to end this sanity. But, uh, and, you know, sadly, tragically, this Israeli government is not listening. It does believe that it has the right to go and destroy all of Gaza. We saw an Israeli minister yesterday, a sitting minister, a minister of culture, uh, uh, calling for nuking Gaza and therefore uh, destroying Gaza and its entirety. And, and this really is reflective of what we've seen, not just now, uh, but over the years, Israel... T- acted on the assumption that it can ignore that there is something called the Palestinian issue, that it can parachute over the Palestinian issue and make regional peace. And 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 uh, this war, shockingly, tragically, sadly, with all the casualties it has it has it has brought, is saying that this assumption is 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 simply illogical. It will not it will not fly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically Israel is saying no and it will have to shoulder the responsibility of its actions. Uh, It is committing war crimes in Gaza. It is creating a sea of hatred that will define generations to come. And yes, we did have a peace treaty with Israel, because our commitment to peace has always been unwavering, because we always believe that peace is the only way to guarantee the security of Palestinians and Israelis and allow this region to break away from this vicious cycle of violence of wars. Uh, But what Israel is doing is creating that much of hatred, which, to be honest, given where uh, public opinion is right now, will be a document that will be collecting uh, dust. I mean, uh, do you foresee any real uh, work now towards what we all wanted uh, to work for regional cooperation, for regional integration? Uh, How could you convince people who are boiling right now that a country that is killing innocent civilians, destroying hospitals, and is denying the humanity of Palestinians, violating every tenant of international law, uh, wants peace. Uh, it, it is just Israel is putting us all in the spot which we never wanted to be, which radicals want us to be in, and it's just acting, uh, driven by what seems to be rage, not if, if it's not listening to its friends, mm-hmm. uh, to its allies, the U.S. and Europe. Uh, that just says something about about how. Uh, blind they are to the ugly reality that they're creating.
0: So first about the uh, heritage minister who talked about nuking Gaza, Uh, the government did disavow that, he has been suspended. But to your point about rage and revenge, you know, every time we ask an official about that, an Israeli official, they say it's not about rage and revenge, it's about making sure that (laughs) those who slaughtered 1,400 uh, civilians mostly will never have the capacity to threaten Israel again. Do you get that?
1: Uh, Honestly, we don't get that. I mean, we all understand the enormity, the pain inflicted on Israel on October 7. We condemn that. We will never accept the killing of civilians. But uh, killing 10,000 Palestinians, uh, uh, displacing 1.4 million, denying people even their basic right to a drop of water or or to a pill of of painkiller, that is not going to uh, uh, guarantee security for Israel. Hamas. is is fighters, but Hamas is also an idea that was born in the conditions of misery that the occupation uh, and the failure by the whole international community to solve this crisis have put us on. So uh, the only path uh, to guaranteeing the security of all, which we want, which we've worked for decades for, is to find a just peace that will fulfill the legitimate rights of Palestinians and address the legitimate concerns of, of Israel. This war is not doing that. It's killing innocent. It's killing women, children. Uh, you've seen the images. and. And those images are in every sitting uh, room of, of millions of people, not just in the Arab world, across the, the whole international community. Look at the reaction in the United States. You refer to campuses in the U.S., Europe, everywhere. Simply, this is brutality. This is... This is uh, just utter inhumanity, and that will not produce peace. Mm-hmm. So, no, we don't get it.
0: On, on campuses, you have anti Semitism and threats. You also have Islamophobia in the United States on campuses. It is a terribly heightened situation uh, right now. But regarding peace, obviously, the West Bank, which is right next to you, is part of the occupied West Bank, is meant to be part of a Palestinian state. Right now, there are two things happening. Settlers and soldiers are basically, you know, there's 150 Palestinians dead, according to authorities on the West Bank, and they're being moved away from their land, in in some instances, several hundred. Do you think that there is a deliberate plan, as many people do believe, that the settlers who are in charge, essentially, of the government are wanting to, under this cover, you know, create their own ideological end, to have the West Bank for themselves. Do you believe that's the case or is it just the fallout from this terrible war that's going on?
1: Uh, If I may, uh, first Christian just just say unequivocally that we are against anti-Semitism, we are against Islamophobia, we condemn that, we warn against it and we urge all of us to come together and and, and really uh, clearly say that this is not uh, a a Muslim Jewish war. Uh, This is a a war between an occupier and an occupied people. So I just want to make clear that we have been warning against this culture of hate. We condemn anti-Semitism as much as we condemn Islamophobia. That said, uh, going to the West Bank, uh, even before this uh, vicious cycle of, of, uh, of, of violence and war started, there has been a systematic Israeli policy to uh, kill any aspiration for the Palestinian people for statehood, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said it himself. In the Israeli government, you have cabinet ministers Smortik, who publicly, openly called for wiping out the Palestinian people. So settlers terrorism, and I'm calling it settler terrorism because it is, has been there for a while. And now, with this new unfortunate tragic circumstances, we're seeing more of that, we're seeing people uh, uh, settlers' attacks increasing. This year, by the way, is the bloodiest year for Palestinians on the West Bank in over decades. Uh, uh, and, and this speaks again to the complete absence of political horizons and to the unleashing uh, of, of settlers by uh, cabinet members who speak that rhetoric of hate, who's just fueling uh, uh, those those kind of movements. If you look at facts on the ground. Uh, there's been over 90,000 new settlers coming to the West Bank since 2019. Uh, Area C has been, has been completely also uh, being uh, uh, incrementally t- taken away from the Palestinians. Uh, settler expansion is continuing. The, the number of settlement ex- expansion or the amount of settlement expansion we've seen in the past few years is unprecedented for decades. Confiscation of land is the same. Encroachment on the holy sites are the same. So uh, I think there is uh, a group within uh, Israel, uh, uh, the radicals, the, the religious Zionists, who are pushing for confrontation, and that does not help Israel, that does not help us, uh, that does not help the Palestinians. So I think everybody needs to stand up to their uh, responsibility here and stop these kind of actions. And if the West Bank explodes, uh, then um, you're looking at a a broader uh, conflict that is just going to affect everybody in the region. So that has got to stop.
0: And finally, you took action, uh, you know, recently to, um, uh, to, to, to basically pull your ambassador from Israel and the Israeli ambassador is not in Jordan. And today your prime minister has said all options are on the table for Jordan in our dealing with the Israeli aggression. What does that mean exactly? What all options? Uh,
1: basically, what we did was we, we recalled our ambassador as a very blunt and, and direct message that we uh, are totally opposed to what's happening, that we believe it will not help anybody in the region, not the Israeli people, not the Palestinian people. So it's a message that this has got to stop. Uh, what we said is that whatever we believe will help end this, this madness. Whatever we believe will help uh, the cause of peace to which we've dedicated years and effort of efforts uh, we will do. So uh, everything is on the table, and as far as uh, we believe it will help us uh, in our efforts to end this war and to push uh, uh, towards a comprehensive, just peace that will uh, once and for, for all uh, make sure that we never are in conditions where Palestinian civilians or Israeli civilians will have to live uh, the, 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 mm-hmm. the inferno that, that we see unfolding before our eyes. And, and I just want to say to all our partners, all our friends in the international community, their message has been consistent that Israel should act within the realm of international law. Well, it is not. Uh, and obviously, it's not listening to adv- advice of its friends. And it's not listening to the genuine calls that are coming from people across the world to say what they're doing is, is simply war crimes. Uh, so where do we go from here? I think it is within Israel's uh, view to decide where we go from here. Continue with this war, and we will pay the price for generations to come. Stop this war. Let's all bite the ones. Let's all say enough death, enough killing, and really come together and say, what, how, what is the path that will make sure that none of us have to go through this again? That path is peace. We're ready to engage with all our partners to start immediately on that path. But Israel is not there yet. Okay. It has to get there. Otherwise, It's hurting itself as much as it's hurting everybody else.
0: And we will do our best to put that to the Prime Minister's office on our program tomorrow. Foreign Minister Eman Safadi, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent.
0: Now, as we mentioned earlier and we've just been talking about this, Secretary Blinken was in Ramallah this weekend meeting with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, who called also for an immediate cessation amid escalating violence in the occupied West Bank. According to the Ministry of Health there, at least 150 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th by Israeli forces or in settler attacks. As Nada Bashir reports, Palestinians are living in fear as hundreds have already been forced to flee their homes.
2: Armed and threatening, this is the face of Israeli settler violence in the occupied West Bank. It's these acts of aggression which are chasing Palestinian families out of their homes. Piece by piece, Palestinians in the village of Khirbet Zanuta pack their lives away, never to return. The settlers come at night while we're sleeping, they beat us and try to kill us. They try to force us out of our homes. I can't sleep anymore. I'm too afraid. Families in this village, once home to some 140 Palestinians, tell us they have been left with no choice but to flee their homes. What's happening now is another Nakba, a catastrophe. I'm 60 years old. I've lived here my entire life. And despite the fact that settlements in the occupied West Bank are considered illegal by many in the international community, they continue to grow and expand with the backing of Israeli authorities. We inherited this land from our forefathers. We've lived here for generations. Now it's only getting worse. The war in Gaza has only encouraged the settlers. According to Israeli rights group Bet at least 15 Palestinian farming communities have been forcibly displaced since October 7th.
5: The real thing that is influencing the life of Palestinians here is the outpost up there.
2: Yehuda Shol, an Israeli human rights activist, says encroachments on Palestinian land are rapidly advancing. And personal attacks in the occupied West Bank have only intensified.
5: The next stage is not only attacking Palestinians when they're out in the field, going into the communities, Enter the homes, burning houses, slashing water tanks, beating up people, threatening women, children, elderly. And the result of it is what you see in front of your eyes. People leaving. Entire communities packing up and leaving. Settlers are taking advantage that all eyes are in Gaza to accelerate their violence. Because there is no protection from the Israeli army. There is no protection from the Israeli police. In many cases, the Israeli army is accompanying the settlers, and in many cases, the settlers are the army.
2: In the nearby village of Atuba, a remote Palestinian community, Israel's military keeps a watchful eye. IDF soldiers never too far away. Yes, you need to go. You need to go. Why? Are you? Why? Because you're in, uh, fire, uh, you in a fire Sorry. Need you need to go. Why? Right now. Why are we not allowed uh-huh. to This village knows the price of settler violence all too well. Palestinians here say their attacks are edging closer each night. They come and threaten us, saying we have to leave or they will be back to target us. They're all armed. They never come here without weapons. In the last week alone, residents here say Israeli settlers have slashed this village's water tanks and cut through local power lines, an effort, NGO workers say, to pressure Palestinian families to leave the area. What
5: we're seeing now is that under the cloak of the war that's happening now, the settler activities, settler violence has uh, increased tremendously over the last few weeks.
2: This crisis is not new to the Palestinian people, but it's a crisis that is deepening. Israel's bombardment of the Gaza Strip said to be emboldening violent settlers. Across the southern Hebron hills, there are now fears that smaller, more remote Palestinian villages could be next. But for Palestinians in Herbert Zenota, it is already too late.
0: Nada Bashir reporting there from the Occupied West Bank. Israel has vowed to eliminate Hamas, but can that be done militarily? My next guest, former IDF soldier Bensi Sanders, was deployed into Gaza during the 2014 war and at the time was full of certainty about his mission. But now he says the idea that Hamas can be military eliminated was a lie then and now. And Sanders has become a peace activist. He's joining us now from Jerusalem. Welcome to the program. You've been listening to some of the reporting just just airing just before you, and you're obviously seeing everything that's going on uh, around you. Tell me first, what has been going through your head and your heart since October 7th?
6: Well, since October 7th, um, uh, everything has changed in some ways. And in other ways, everything is, my, my worst fears are coming true. Um, I, uh, as you mentioned, uh, I fought in Gaza in 2014. Uh, that war was also preceded by a horrific terrorist attack, just like we saw on October 7th. Three Israeli teenagers were kidnapped and murdered, which led to a horrific, uh, which led to the uh, firing of rockets. A, a, a massive crackdown on Hamas in the West Bank and firing of rockets and then a ground invasion. Uh, the, the images uh, that uh, everyone is seeing, that I'm seeing, uh, remind me very vividly of that fighting. Um, and frankly, it, it's, it's my worst fears because uh, many people, colleagues uh, uh, in the Israeli peace camp, in the Israeli anti-occupation camp have been warning for so many years saying that uh, there is no military solution. We can't just manage the conflict and maintain uh, a a very, very brutal military uh, regime of control over Palestinians uh, that actually plays into the hands of Hamas and plays into the hands of these murderous uh, terrorist groups. Uh, And so uh, all I've been doing since then is trying to share my message, try to share my experience, and try to avoid making the same mistakes that we made in 2014 when Hamas only got stronger after we bombed them and killed thousands and we struck them a a decisive blow, or that's at least what I thought at the time, but I only saw afterwards that my own government strengthened Hamas.
0: You know, it's pretty intense to hear you say that, look, we know that the majority of your country right now is in favor of this war. They might not be in favor of the current government, but they definitely believe that somehow, somewhere, um, Hamas has to be defeated. You're saying it can't be done militarily. Tell us, I guess the first question really is to you, are you out of step with the majority of your country people right now? And are you able still to talk about, you know, what you saw, what you feel, what you've learned, how you've changed?
6: Yeah, well, I'll add, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. I believe that Israel has the responsibility to defend itself against Hamas. And of course, uh, that includes military uh, actions. But I think that right now in Israeli society, there's a debate going on as to whether this war that we're fighting should be against Hamas or it should it be against the Palestinian people. And you have uh, members of this current government who have said since the horrific atrocities that we saw in October, on October 7th against Israeli civilians and the kidnapping of Israeli uh, civilians who are still being held, they have made it clear that they uh, aren't differentiating between civilians and, 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 uh, and Hamas. Uh, even. Last night, a senior member of the coalition—sorry, on Saturday night, senior member of the coalition of the a member of the cabinet, Bezalel Smotrich, the finance minister, and the minister overseeing uh, the West Bank in the Ministry of Defense—said that he doesn't really see a big difference between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. The Arabs are the same Arabs. So there are many Israelis who disagree with that, and there are many Israelis who are questioning the assumptions. Uh, and and questioning the lies that they've been told for so many years. And maybe it is a majority who has uh, believed the lies that our government has told us. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, I think that this is an opportunity for for, uh, partners uh, of mine in the Israeli peace camp. I saw many
0: of my... uh Yes? Bensi, your line has dropped. We're going to redial you and we're going to bring you back. We're going to bring you back, okay? So, stand by, and we'll bring you back.
4: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As we mentioned earlier, tension and division mount in most corners of the world over this. University campuses in the U.S. have become one of the focal points, from Ivy Leagues to public schools and colleges. Five recent incidents at Stanford University are under investigation as potential hate crimes, according to the school. But our next guest, Dartmouth College Chair of Jewish Studies Susanna Heschel and Chair of Middle Eastern Studies there, Tarek El Aris, wanted to create a forum for students to discuss their positions and their thoughts. Michelle Martin speaks to both professors about that response and what it achieved.
3: Thanks, Christian, Professor al Professor Herschel, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. thank you. As we are speaking, we are about a month after these terrible events that have consumed so much of our attention, this terrible you know, attack um, by Hamas in, in southern Israel. And if I could just ask you briefly to take me back to that moment. Professor al do you remember how you found out what had happened and
7: what went through your mind? Well, I was, I was in Cairo. When this happened, and I was following as the events unfold on the Arabic channels and so on, and and I, you know, I mean, I'm originally from Lebanon, but I also mm. lived in New York on 9/11. I mean, it was one of those moments where I felt this is really horrible, horrible event. I immediately got on the phone with, uh, you know, with Professor Heschel, and we said mm. this is really, this is not just. Any other attack or, you know, um, another episode that that we see a lot of. This is something that is going to open a, a portal into a form of violence that that we we're not we haven't seen like this. And immediately we talked and said, okay, we need to create a forum for this. We need to create a space where people can come and 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 talk about this and engage with this and think about this. This is gonna you know, capture people's minds. I mean, this is going to really make people want to, it's going to consume people, not only in the Middle East, but also obviously, you know, in the U.S. as well. And wherever there are diasporas, uh, identifying with that part of the world in some way.
3: It sounds as though both for both of you, your immediate instinct is we have to create a forum to talk about this. Professor Heschel, talk to me about about that. Because look, it it has to be said that was not every scholar's first instinct. I mean, some scholars were, you know, organizing rallies. Some scholars were, you know, it, 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 it say more if you would about the conversation that you and Professor Alariz had. I was extremely upset, as you can imagine, Mm -hmm. but I have a professional
4: obligation as a scholar to my university and to my work. And so we spoke on the phone. We decided we would have two academic forums at the Dartmouth College campus and set those up. I was one of them and the others were uh, three other scholars who are teaching in Middle Eastern studies. I have to say the Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies have had a long and very fruitful collaboration on campus. So we have relationships, we co-teach courses. I'm co-teaching a course with Professor Jonathan Smolin from Middle Eastern studies this term on the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. Um, and so he spoke and then we have another course on Israel-Palestine taught co-taught hmm by Bernard Avishai and Ezzedine Fashir from government. So we offered this as a panel to, to demonstrate to the college students and faculty how we come together in this moment. We model for them what it is to be a scholar, what it is to be an academic at an academic institution to discuss the issues thoughtfully, not to look for condemnations or... Uh, to speak about emotions, but to think in context. What can we as scholars contribute to the analysis of this moment and also demonstrate how we should think in this moment? How should we be responding as academics? And that we felt also what we succeeded in doing really at Dartmouth was to keep all sides together.
3: As a community mm. of academics, which is exactly what we do in our classroom. One of the reasons we called you is that we we saw an article in the forward titled "Many Universities Fumbled Reactions to Hamas's Attack." Here is how Dartmouth got it right. Did the administration play any role in this? Because as we've seen in a number of other universities, the you know university presidents have been heavily criticized for not speaking or not saying enough or not saying something soon enough. Absolutely. We have a new president at Dartmouth,
4: President Sian Bylock, who immediately said we have to do something. And she asked the dean of faculty, Elizabeth Smith, to call me, and she did. And I told her Monday morning early, we've already made plans to do something. So the leadership at Dartmouth has been very strong and very much in support of what we are doing as faculty and that has made a huge difference as well. Tell me about that first forum. What was it like? We recognize that students, faculty, staff, the community, were all very upset, frightened, worried, and angry. And Dartmouth does offer 24-hour-a-day mental health counseling for students, for example, and we emphasize that. We also have chaplains to speak to students and to faculty, and that's also important. But our job at these forums was to come together as academics to demonstrate what we do in our classrooms. When we co-teach a course, Professor el and I co-teach a course called Arabs, Jews, and Modernity. We have students who are Jewish, Christian, Muslim from all over the world, Palestinian students. We come together in the classroom to understand, work together, to think through the problems. And the classroom becomes a place where students work together and form friendships and think together. So we don't polarize. And that's what we wanted to achieve with these forums. And that actually did happen. And of course there's students who are very upset emotionally. I was too, I still am very upset, but that's not as a professional, what I bring to my classroom. That classroom is a different kind of space. It's not a space to rant and rave and do agitation and propaganda and demagoguery. Classroom is a place for scholarship.
3: Professor when, Alaris, when you did get back to campus and you started participating in these conversations, what are some of the things that you heard?
7: The students started coming to my office and, and I opened my office to them to hear what they're feeling, what they're thinking and, and to support them and to be there with them and also, as Professor Heschel mentioned, we have students from different, you know, backgrounds and different political, you know, v- you know, v- views, positions that are in our classes, and they come to our classes because they feel like we are able to maintain a conversation where their views are respected and also we're not imposing any of our views on them and we we mm-hmm. try to encourage them to ha- to form their own perspective when they look at how jews and arabs worked together throughout mm-hmm. the 19th century and in the middle east and other part of the world mm-hmm. how they defended each other's causes i mean it's a history of common struggle as well sometimes in relation to you know european colonialism or various forms of biases so we we also in our work try to present a different kind of history of of, of living together that the, and students come to this from you know Jewish students Palestinian students and they know each other and they come with us on our study abroad they there is a connection between them so when these things happen they are still talking and this is important I ask the students are you still? you know, how so-and-so, you know, I'm asking a Jewish student about how a Palestinian student is doing, you know, and vice versa. And I think it's important that we play that role, that we, you know, engage intellectually, explain the complexity of of histories and, and conflicts, but at the same time to maintain a community of care. We are here to support them. We are here to listen to them. And we want them to support each other as well.
3: One of the things, you know, you hear from students who are Muslim or Palestinian or Arab, you know, or all three, is that they they feel that they have been silenced. They feel that they can't express their, you know, legitimate, you know, fear, anger, concern. I mean, on the one hand, you have the Jewish students who are deeply afraid and legitimately so and then you also have arab and palestinian and muslim students who are deeply afraid for different reasons and i and i can imagine where they might look to you to be a spokesman for them and i'm just interested in your take on all this
7: absolutely absolutely and i engage them and we create forums for them also to go to the students in their own comfortable safe spaces so that people can come and talk to them and ask them and see how, not only what they think, but also how they feel. So we're very, very, you know, very much doing this. But I think also there is a frustration. It's understandable that there is frustration that the political resolution of this conflict has not happened. The emphasis has been on like security measures and containment and management rather than a real political solution. And I think it's important for us also as academics, We understand the frustration that the political solution through talks, you know, historically has has fumbled, but also we need to, what else do we have? I mean, for us, other than conversation, other than engagement, other than engaging the other and trying to show the other side your perspective and do it in a way that brings them in rather than alienate them at the outset.
3: Has anybody criticized you for not being angry enough Professor Eloriz, I mean, I'm just curious if anybody has criticized you for not being outraged enough.
7: On their- I mean, I I I lived 15 years in a in a civil war situation under all kinds of bombs, and 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 it took me a long time to to deal with that and and deal with the anger, but also to transform the anger into something more constructive. and But I also see the frustration in the students who mm-hmm. feel like they wanna do something and they can't do anything. And they okay. feel, but it is also like there is a culture out there that's expecting students at, at the university, freshmen and so on to somehow have the power to change uh, a human rights mm-hmm. situation or to intervene in a political situation and that's not fair that's a huge burden on that student and that's crushing in some way and part of what we have to do i want to on the one hand alleviate that burden to act and also ex- and say i i understand the frustration and and uh, but mm-hmm. also i need to calm them down make them listen and also try to explain to them a larger picture and and bring them into a larger picture and then bring them also to talk about people who feel that burden on the other side or from the okay. other perspective and if we cut those ties if we create those walls that separate say okay i won't talk to the other camp because mm-hmm. this is what i believe and it is absolute then where do we go from here? I mean, will we still have education the way we understand mm-hmm. it? I mean, this is how I'm trained as, as a humanist, as someone who's invested in, in talking to the other person. I mean, I cannot just simply say I won't talk, this is my view and that's it, take it or leave it. I will do anything to to achieve my views. This is not also, this is not my, my mission as an educator. Mm.
3: Professor Heschel, I just want to ask you the same thing. I mean, do, do people have any, Has anyone said this to you, that you should be on this side or that you're not outraged enough? Has anyone said that to you? I'm sure people think it. um, uh, And I know that
4: I have colleagues at other institutions who've said that a Jewish studies professor should represent the Jewish studies or the Jewish community, the Jewish federation on campus and so on. Uh, That's not the role of an academic. Um, I want my classroom to be a place where all students feel comfortable people will sometimes ask me well how many of your students are jewish and when i have a big class i don't know i don't know who's jewish and who isn't and why should i want to know that we're here to study together and i have students from all kinds of parts of the world students from china and pakistan and vietnam and so and they're interested and i want them to come and feel perfectly
3: comfortable and equal to every other student in the classroom one of the things I'm hearing from you is that several things came to play here. You had longstanding prior relationships of mutual respect, OK? You had a history of not just working together, but uh, but being very clear about your role in a time of crisis. And you have also kind of have deep friendships among yourselves. And I'm just wondering, why is this so hard? Um, it just seems that a number of these sort of prominent universities that things seem to have kind of spun out of control. I mean, you have kids sending hate messages, you have kids tearing down posters of other people's, you know, posters amplifying the people who've been taken hostage. Why does it seem so hard in some of these places? Do you have a theory about that? Yes, well, um, this is something we're going to
4: be thinking about for a long time to come. What brought us to this point? And there are many factors. Institutional leadership is one. We have a great leader who knew what to do, and of course, the friendships and the relationships we can't just plunge right in. Why is it that so many Jewish studies and Middle Eastern studies programs at different universities are at war with each other? They don't mm-hmm. talk to each other. We collaborate in courses that are cross-listed, co-taught, programs that we organize together, and so on. So we've been doing this for a long time. And sometimes it may be uncomfortable, of course. We may hear things from a guest speaker that we don't like, but mm-hmm. we don't bring in guest speakers as mouthpieces for ourselves. We bring in speakers who will challenge us, and that's what we do in our classroom. I give students something to read, and I'll say, well, now, what would you say in response to this? What's your argument? How do you formulate it? What's the evidence? What's wrong with this article, and what's right with it? And if you don't like it, say something, but say it in an academic, intelligent way that has warrants for the proof. So those are some of the factors, and there are other elements as well. So a student at one of the forums said, is Israel an apartheid state? And the response was, look, first of all, it doesn't really fit the definition. But, you know, another response is to say, we're not here to judge. We're here to understand. I'm not a judge in a courtroom. I'm not a jury. I'm an academic. I want to analyze. I want to think. What is the purpose? of say defining something as apartheid or defining an incident which may be terrible. The bombing in Gaza, Mm -hmm. killing of people is a terrible thing. Why do I have to call it genocide? Can I just say this is terrible? When Hamas attacked Israeli civilians, it is terrible, it's devastating. 1,400 people murdered, innocent civilians. But I wanna analyze, I wanna think it through, how did we get to this point? And I don't want to simply fit it into a prior narrative, whether it's a colonial narrative or something else. And that's what I think we're stuck, many of us in our academic work, we're stuck in predetermined narratives. We're stuck in what the philosopher Carl Hempel called covering laws. And we need to break out of that and think in more expansive terms and analyze more carefully and creatively and also think about what we are trying to accomplish, not to label, not to judge, but actually to move forward. Because we have, ultimately, as
3: academics, we have a commitment to humanity, to human lives. But Professor, I'll ask you this, but these are kids. I mean, some of them are kids. I mean, some of the reason that they go to college is to figure out who they are. I mean, overdoing it, you know, doing too much, saying too much, saying the wrong thing, that's part of growing up on the one
7: hand, right? And I'm just... I mean, you know, the the students who said upper Israel apartheid said, but he said it in such a re- respectful way, said, what do you think if I would yeah. say Israel is an apartheid? And thank you for answering my question. I mean, this is what I retain from that also. It is also the way, it is not what you say. It is the way you, you say it. And it is also to have an environment that allows you to say what you want to say without, uh, completely getting rid canceling the other. You know, disagreement doesn't mean an erasure. And that's what's very important to hold on to. I can disagree with you. I can have my strong feeling about things and say them, but I have to find a way where I'm not, you know, completely not letting the other person speak also and Mm -hmm. express their view or or their opinion and their feeling as well. So I think our role is really to create that space where Mm -hmm. one Feeling one voice doesn't cancel the other. Professor Tarek El Aris, Professor Susana Herschel, thank you so
3: much for, for talking with us today. I b- believe that uh, your words will be a bomb to many people. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Thank you.
0: Indeed, they will. Talking across that potential divide is so important. Let's now then bring back in Bensi Sanders, the former IDF soldier and now peace activist. Uh, You've been standing by in Jerusalem. We had some technical difficulties, but Bensi, you are back. So I want to ask you again about the op-ed, the article you wrote for The New York Times, describing what it was like, you know, in the deployment in 2014 in Gaza. You wrote, you know, that some of your soldiers were feeling doubts at that time. and Then you wrote your own thoughts on a piece of paper and you wrote this. I wrote that some members of my team had been tallying the number of soldiers killed and discussing whether this operation was worth the losses. I think it could be worth it, I wrote, as long as we decisively eliminate the threat. That's the lie they told us and the lie that's being repeated today, that we can decisively eliminate the threat of Hamas through a military operation. Bensi, how did you come to the conclusion that you couldn't?
6: Well, um, you know, one of the voices uh, that I've listened to over the years and ha- I've been convinced by is not just not just the voices of human rights activists, but also the voice of the former head of the Shin Bet, Ami Ayalon, uh, who's the top counterterrorism expert and, and uh, for four and a half years in the in the country. And he said this openly. He said the only way to decisively defeat uh, 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 the terrorism that Hamas represents is through creating an alternative and creating hope. Uh, And that means working towards a political solution. And uh, our current government has been fundamentally uh, committed to opposing a political solution and to preventing uh, the creation of a Palestinian state and preventing Palestinian independence. So therefore, that's why I realize that a military alone will not defeat Hamas. uh, and, uh, And that's why I think that our government needs to be changed immediately.
0: So let me ask you then as well, because you talk a lot in your paper about what you saw in Gaza in 2014. Tell me, because earlier you said you don't believe that the soldiers distinguish carefully enough between civilians and Hamas fighters. What did you yourself experience to make you say that?
6: Well, uh, you know, uh, in the area that we went, uh, we were told that uh, all the civilians had fled, and that was true for the most part, but it wasn't entirely true. We did find civilians. Uh, There was an entire family in the second neighborhood that that my unit took over. There was an entire family who stayed behind, uh, and the soldiers, uh, you know, luckily, when they entered the house, they didn't kill them through live fire. Uh, They gave them food and water. They guarded them for many days. But when we pulled out, the Air Force uh, flew overhead and bombed the entire neighborhood, uh, and and eight members of that family were killed. I learned this later. So I've seen this with my own eyes, and I'm not, and I'm listening today, I'm listening to my own leaders, uh, including, who I mentioned, uh, Bitzal El Smutrich, who said he doesn't really differentiate between uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority, which recognizes Israel and wants to negotiate with Israel, and Hamas, which is the terrorist organization that carried out these atrocities. The, The Arabs are the Arabs. That's what he said on Saturday night on Israeli television. So uh, it's hard for me to believe. I don't believe it. I've seen it with my own eyes. I don't believe that Israel is doing everything in its power to prevent civilian casualties based on the statements of members of the Likud and other members of the coalition. And I think that that's a result of the fact that this government doesn't view the Palestinian people as the future partners for making peace with. Uh, and they are just convinced that overwhelming military power is going to bring us safety and security. And this is a uh, Catastrophic mistake. It's the same catastrophic mistake that led us to the, the horrific uh, uh uh events of uh October 7th. And we absolutely need to change that. We need our, our partners abroad, we need the US government. Also, I'm an Israeli, uh, but I'm also an American. And I expect that the American government also not just pays lip service to the idea of uh pursuing a political solution. You know, settlements are expanding at a at an incredible rate. Uh, settlers are illegally taking over land, not even according to international law, according to Israeli law. They're going out and they're shooting at uh, Palestinian civilians, and there's no, uh, with impunity, there's no real enforcement against them. Uh, and so uh, I think the, uh, our international uh, partners and allies need to take a stance on the side of the Israelis who are demanding a uh, political solution and are demanding uh, uh, differentiation and that the Isra- our government uh, make sure not to uh, uh, harm and kill uh, innocent civilians.
0: Um, Bensi, obviously they tell us endlessly that they are doing their best, uh, but you can see allies like the United States are getting increasingly worried, not to mention everybody on the ground, about the civilian toll. Um, there is, There are stories, uh, a lot, about dissent being quashed in Israel. Are you not worried about what you're saying to me publicly now, uh, being accused of siding with the enemy and the kind of things that are getting some Israelis in trouble?
6: You know, uh, it's, it's a risk that I have to take for the future of the, p- the people in it, of Israel. Uh, you know, uh, uh, siding with the enemy would be ironic for my government to accuse me after my government, uh, in order to prevent a Palestinian state, actually facilitated the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars to Hamas uh, and uh, preferred... To bolster Hamas uh, and to uh, uh, delegitimize the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian human rights organizations, they designated Palestinian human rights organizations as terrorist organizations. They, ca- they uh, categorized Palestinian diplomatic initiatives as Palestinian uh, as diplomatic terrorism. But Hamas, uh, they facilitated the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars, and they also crushed Palestinian hopes of independence, which also fed. Uh, the fuel of Hamas, because that's what uh, Hamas is the enemy of peace. And uh, when our government uh, committed itself to preventing a peace process and preventing negotiations, they were actually helping Hamas.
0: Ben C. Sanders, thank you very much. And, and what you've just said has been uh, confirmed by, by very many people. And obviously, we know that governments were encouraged to try to make. Gaza and Hamas sort of economically okay, thinking that the threat had subsided. But clearly, we know that it had not. Bensi Sanders, thank you very much indeed. And finally, tonight, we take a moment to remember the 36 journalists who've lost their lives since October 7th. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, these past four weeks have been the deadliest since they began documenting anywhere in the world back in 1992. But a glimmer of hope, CNN journalist in Gaza, Ibrahim Dahman, and his family are finally safe now. He and his two sons and his wife, who's expecting another baby, were granted passage into Egypt via the Rafa crossing from Gaza into Egypt. For 28 days, they had lived in fear, under constant bombardment, displaced from the north, and with limited food and water. So we want to thank Ibrahim for his courageous reporting, documenting his family's fight to survive. Here's the moment they knew they would be safe. <laughs> So you can see the happy faces there. They have a reprieve. We want to thank all the journalists who are in Gaza for whatever organization telling the world what's going on. And it's not easy. And so we want to pay tribute to all journalists everywhere trying to tell the stories that we should all know. Now, a quick programming note. On Saturday, you can watch the brand new Amanpour Hour from 11 a.m. on America's East Coast, which is 5 p.m. in Central Europe. We'll bring context, conversation, and analysis of our world with newsmakers, cultural icons, and the very best of CNN reporting from the field. I'm also taking some of your questions about events that shape our future. So scan the QR code on your screen or email askamanpour at CNN.com. The Amanpour Hour airs Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central Europe, only here on CNN. And that is it for now. Thank you for watching. Goodbye from London.
2: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.